1: Conspiracy
2: Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And away we go. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. This is The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Uh, Before we get rolling, let's welcome another affiliate, WRNI AM in Providence, Rhode Island. WRNI 1290 AM in Providence. Wow, great to be... uh, Part of the WRNI radio uh, family and their weekly programming schedule. Uh, Really appreciate uh, you bringing the conspiracy show on board. Uh, This is our first affiliate in Little Rhodey, as it's called. I love Rhode Island's motto: very simple, succinct, to the point, inspiring. Hope. That's their state motto. All right, let me ask you something: What do you consider to be the greatest threat? facing Western civilization is it Islamic fundamentalism Russia China the disparity between the 1% and the rest of us environmental degradation climate change Uh, some of you may be familiar with Elon Musk he's the Tesla and SpaceX founder who is uh, occasionally compared to comic book hero Tony Stark well Elon is worried about a new villain that could threaten humanity, specifically the potential creation of an artificial intelligence that is radically smarter than humans with somewhat catastrophic results. Anyway, uh, Musk has been talking about superintelligence, paths, dangers, strategies, which is um, a book by Nick Bostrom at the University of Oxford's Future of Humanity Institute. And we're going to talk about that uh, tonight, not with Elon Musk, but with an advanced tech expert by the name of Eric Schiffer, He'll join me tonight to discuss the potential of a robot apocalypse. What will it be like when many of us are working alongside robots? And that future is much closer and potentially more dangerous than many of us think. Uh, But first, uh, last week I introduced one of the speakers, one of the remarkable uh, speakers, that will be appearing at my upcoming conference, Follow the Truth, the Conspiracy Show Summit, which is happening this November... November the uh, 16th, at the Regent Theatre in Oshawa. Uh, Professor Ronald Mallett uh, joined us last week. He'll be speaking about time travel and his theoretical time machine. Tonight, I'd like to introduce you to another remarkable gentleman who will also be appearing at Follow the Truth. Donald R. Schmidt is the former co-director of the the J. Allen Hynek Center for UFO Studies, where he served as director of special investigations for 10 years. Prior to that, he was a special investigator for the late Dr. J. Heinick and the uh, director for the, or the art director for the International UFO Reporter. He graduated from MATC with a degree in commercial art and graduated uh, cum laude from Concordia University with a degree in liberal arts. He's presently taking graduate. Or this is uh, an older uh, bio, actually. I, I think he has a. Uh, a graduate degree in criminal justice, he is the author of dozens of articles about UFOs as well as the co-author of The Roswell Dig Diaries, Sci-Fi Declassified, The Truth About the UFO Crash at Roswell, Witness to Roswell, and Inside the Real Area 51, The Secret History of Wright-Patterson. It's a great pleasure to welcome to the Conspiracy Show, Donald Schmidt. Don, how are you? Oh, well, hello, Richard. so good to be back with you again, and thank you for all those kind words. And uh, really looking forward to sharing the stage with you uh, again Sunday, November the 16th at the, uh, the Region Theatre in Oshawa, Ontario. Uh, so what can we expect? I mean, uh, obviously, we, we're just going to spend a few moments here uh, uh, with a few of the highlights, but uh, you're going to be presenting. Obviously, we'll, we'll, uh, Roswell will be front and center.
1: Yes, it will be. And we will also be focusing on the aftermath, the, the history that even most within ufology, if one removes Roswell from the equation, it paints this picture of the government just floundering around. Uh, and I talk specifically the United States government and going through their special UFO projects, Project Sign, Grudge, and Blue Book, and that they just never really, you know, got uh, you know with it really. You know, really got going as far as a legitimate investigation. When in reality, after Roswell, they had the physical evidence, as evidence even within two months after Roswell. In September of 1947, when then General Nathan Twining, who was the head of the Air Material Command at Wright Field in Dayton, Ohio, actually uh, signed off on a letter where he stated the phenomena was something real, and not visionary or fictitious. So we're going to, you know, demonstrate that if one inserts Roswell, in other words, that if history as far as the United States government is based on the fact that in '47 they did indeed recover physical evidence, demonstrating that we are not alone, that there is an intelligence beyond, the, uh, beyond planet Earth, and it had a mishap involving a crash, we recovered the technology, And what if after all this time we still can't find the on button? That the cover-up remains a cover-up of ignorance that during these past 67 years that all they can do is bury it, hide it away, crate it up, prevent future generations from ever learning the truth. And as a result, we are in the midst of this ongoing self-perpetuating cover-up that if not for those of us at least within the civilian organizations researchers and investigators who are devoting their lives to unraveling this truth the public wouldn't have any access wouldn't know anything about this subject
2: if there's anyone living or dead that knows more about the roswell ufo crash uh... more than you don i I don't know who that person might be how many how many digs or how many archaeological digs have you led at the actual ufo crash site
1: There have been four, and I have led all four of them. We are presently planning on a fifth for early next year. I say early, I I mean uh, the latter part of spring. And uh, the next time we're actually going to uh, work away from the site, the the actual site, miles away. We're going to follow the uh, natural runoff, the erosion from the area. And where it deposits, where everything through all of these decades has been depositing all these years with the hope that something may have been moved unbeknownst to anyone and uh, it, it needs to be excavated. We uh, we confirmed the gouge, for example, witnesses have described um, for uh, many times taking us out to the site where immediately after the incident something had left a furrow about 10 foot wide, hundreds of feet long, and something had impacted. And, a, and clearly a weather balloon of any sort doesn't leave an impact site. And um, everything is filled in through the years. And in 2002, when we had a backhoe, archaeologists actually cross perpendicularly the very site. And just below the surface, there it was, the symmetrical V. Wow. And precisely where the witnesses told us. And uh, for the first time, it demonstrated that there indeed was an impact. Something had slammed across the ground, had skipped across uh, the terrain for hundreds of feet. And um, there's no documentation, no evidence, no eyewitness testimony to suggest anything else has happened out there except the crash of a genuine flying saucer. Uh,
2: any other artifacts? Uh, have, have any other artifacts turned up in the previous four uh, digs at Roswell?
1: More of a prosaic uh, uh, Type uh, Richard, and that would be military buttons that would date in the 1940s. Metal buttons with metal with military uh, markings, insignias on them. Uh, the bottom of a lugged rubber sole of a boot. Well, the ranchers, the cowboys out there, all wear cowboy boots, you know, leather sole boots. Sure. Not, uh, and these were you know, these are army boots once again as it certainly appears to us. There have been metal fragments. We have found fragments um, since 2002. Some um, are not, especially on a radioisotope chart, specific elements jump off. They should not be there. They are not um, of any known manufacture that has ever been registered or patented here on planet Earth. So those are interesting. But let me say, Richard, what I'm more curious about, what I'm becoming at least more amused by, is that someone appears to be contaminating the site within the past five years. Oh, my. Not only have nails been sprayed out all over once uh, certain areas of the site, but more and more fragments of just very plain aluminum, which were not there five years ago. And now metal detection is... Is picking this up on a regular basis so we're finding way too much we're finding things that were never out there before and uh, again it's as though someone is trying to not only contaminate but uh, totally discredit any future findings on our part and let me say and I will also demonstrate this in my talk that the military specifically the United States Air Force has been out there repeatedly since 1947 not only immediately after the incident, for years, after heavy rains especially, checking out to make sure they had every last piece of physical evidence, but even within recent years, ranchers, ranch hands, have caught Air Force personnel out there, doing who knows what.
2: That's a lot of uh, time and effort just just to recover a weather balloon,
1: Doc. Precisely, and why should they be interested after over 50 years? In the physical remains of very off-the-shelf material of neoprene rubber and wooden sticks and reflective foil and and masking tape. Um, This is out in the middle of the desert.
2: Sure. uh, well, I you know I'm I'm so thrilled that uh, that you're going to be part of uh, Follow the Truth, the Conspiracy Show Summit, and and what I had intended for this conference is is not to preach to the choir, but also to to get this out to the to a mainstream audience, people that might be uh, interested in UFOs and, and ETs and and but are, are not necessarily, for example, you know uh, disclosure advocates. They have kind of a they think something's going on, and this is to me the a great entry uh, point for, for these people is uh, to hear a talk about rock because when it comes to to UFO and and ETs and ufology really all roads lead to Roswell don't they
1: yes 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 all all roads lead to Roswell all roads lead from Roswell to Wright-Patterson in Dayton Ohio it's where all the official UFO investigations took place and as demonstrated in our our new book that is where the wreckage and the bodies all were transported immediately after the crash so we'll be going through all that all the new eyewitness testimony, all the interesting stories about wright Pat and the underground facilities, the vaults, the hangars that have always been denied by the government. Can't so wait. we to present that as a court case that we would win in any court of law.
2: Can't wait, Don. Uh, thank Jenny you so much. All right, that is Don Schmidt. Follow the Truth, the Conspiracy Show Summit, six amazing speakers and an all-day conference Sunday, November the 16th, Region Theater, Follow the followthetruth.tv, Or you can call the Regent Theatre box office at 905-721-3399, 905-721-3399. Here's a little tip. Use the code word ROSWELL and receive a 25% discount. When we come back, are robots more dangerous than nukes? You're listening to The Conspiracy Show. Stay a while, won't you? Welcome back. Just a reminder, uh, Season 3 of The Conspiracy Show, the television program, well underway... And uh, this coming Monday, 10 p.m. Eastern, across Canada on Vision TV, I believe we are into uh, week four. Uh, week four. So, um, uh, And don't forget, after the episode, log on to our, our brand-new interactive website, theconspiracyshow.com, and uh, you, can, you can vote. Uh, are you a skeptic? Are you a believer? What did you think of the episode? Discuss, debate uh, with, with others online. That's uh, season three, Vision TV across Canada. 10 p.m. Eastern. All right. Eric Schiffer is chairman and CEO of Patriarch Equity and DigitalMarketing.com, and he is a renaissance man in the truest sense of the word. He's a best-selling author, a successful entrepreneur, a mainstay in New York, London, and L.A. High Society. He's founded two companies listed on Inc. Magazine's 505,000 gr- fastest-growing companies and serves as a trusted advisor to multiple Fortune 500 CEOs, presidents of countries, foreign leaders, and Forbes 400 billionaires. Eric Schiffer, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm doing well, Richard. How are you? Very well. Thank you. Uh, earlier in the program, I was uh, uh, referring to Elon Musk uh, from Tesla and SpaceX yes. and uh, also, of course, Nick Bostrom's book, uh, Superintelligence Paths, Dangers, Strategies. Uh, yes. Do you share their fears uh, about uh, artificial intelligence and, and robots? I do and have been speaking
3: about it for some time and, in fact, um, preceded Ellen's, uh, you know, warnings about uh, becoming the biological bootloader for digital superintelligence. And and also, you know, I think also Hawking's who has both commented about the positive aspect of what is this coming superintelligence, and also the fact that it can be society's greatest destructive force, uh, not unlike what nukes uh, are and other major uh, societal potential harms to the continued life. And, And this is not really theoretical anymore. It's a question of time. Some are saying that uh, the most recent technologies are very close. Others are saying 5 to 10, 15 years. Artificial intelligence exists. I mean, it exists in many different forms. We know this. and, and We know we've readily beat at chess with our greatest chess champions at Jeopardy. Uh, We are using it in uh, health and medical scenarios. We're using it on the military side. So it's not a question of of the capability. It's just a question of at what point does it become self-sustaining, reflective, and can we as a society build in uh, safe harbor elements that can control or place into what uh, arguably, has been encoded in us, which is a sense of morality.
2: Well, l- l- let's uh, l- let me get you to uh, just to say what it is. What is the nature of the threat then uh, w- with artificial intelligence? Why do we need to fear it? At the right point, artificial intelligence begins to become self-aware,
3: can connect with others, and in the interests of humankind can take measures into its own uh, hands using robotics that may seem to help society or seem to help human beings, but can end up becoming the destruction of human beings. So, uh, for instance, it may launch nuclear weapons. It could shut down uh, grids for electricity or shut down communication Capabilities, uh, it could begin to dig or construct uh, projects that would, uh, in the interest of being able to protect against humans, end up hurting humans. And so, this is the concept that that people are concerned about, and, and certainly uh, intelligent, thoughtful people, and and also people that have seen uh, other like scenarios. And you know, and when you consider the concept of even on the on the thematic side, uh this concept of Skynet, which was this terminator like uh machine that was uh, eventually began to think and plan and uh, and have an a system where they began to take over uh, it's It is not unreasonable to formulate what what hello. Yes, we're here. Yeah, it's yeah. not unreasonable to formulate this next-generation situation.
2: And this is what they this, – this, uh, this pinnacle, this point of no return is what we refer to as the singularity, correct? I, I'm sorry. I missed that. I've, if you cut out, I apologize. All right. This, this point of no return, uh, when artificial intelligence, uh, I suppose, begins to look at, at uh, humans as the enemy, this is, is this what they refer to as the singularity? Well, this
3: is singularity, but that doesn't necessarily presuppose that it's going to be the enemy. In other words, singularity means that robots at some point begin, or artificial intelligence begins to supersede human intelligence. That in and of itself is not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, it can be great for society. The question is, at what point does it supersede human intelligence and then begin to... Uh, have it the ability to think on its own and uh, and can pivot and do things that could uh, end up being the destruction of the human race and we have no guidelines for this we have no associations that are formed to ensure that the art the construction of artificial intelligence has some level what we would consider to be morality or uh, a structure that would prevent, this kind of thinking and action from occurring. And uh, there's certainly no regulation that that looks at it or even any monitoring right now. And that's what I'm calling for. I'm calling for some level of uh, structure to this to encode what would be a digital morality into these systems so that we don't get into a situation that 5, 10, 15 years from now uh, we can't fathom because the machine is that much more intelligent, and we can't control because it's our, because the genie's out of the bag. And to presuppose that we're going to be able to figure this out uh, really undermines the whole premise of how machine uh, thinking can evolve. For instance, to, to, it, it's not necessarily going to be a type of intelligence that that uh we we may know, and in other words, it be it can be a far more complex form, not unlike how a human may perceive the ratio between themselves and an ant's ability to think right and to and so to the extent that we decide that we want to build a hotel in a certain part of the world, the last uh, person or or thing that we intervene with, or or to, or to check how how it may impact would be you know ants or insects or even what they what they feel on the matter. Well, th- this is the same scenario. Is is that when you get when you get into these these uh, two and three level uh, of, uh, potential conceptual areas, you can have these kind of situations in which humans are not consulted. Humans are. Are a byproduct, and, they, and the robots and artificial intelligence can think that because it's in their best interests, ultimately as a society, to protect humans, uh, it's okay to destroy X amount. And again, without a structure in place, we risk this. And this is, you know, when Kurzweil says fifteen years to twenty years, and when some of these other great minds are saying we really need to look at this, because this could be the worst uh, type of uh, invention from a a life preservation standpoint, this is not far off. And then when we consider what's already going on in the military, I mean, the military has devices now, at least on the U.S. side, that are both of a robotic nature and of a superintelligence nature that would make your jaw drop. Uh, We're talking about robots that... Um, are not far off from what we've seen in the movies on the Terminator side. We're talking about mechanical horses that uh, can carry tremendous payloads up hills. We're talking about uh, cheetahs that can run at speeds far faster than uh, most animals to track down things. And we're talking about intelligence uh, on an artificial level that can supersede some of the things that we've seen, certainly on the IBM uh, Chess and Jeopardy level, in the ability to predict future
2: events. Advanced tech expert Eric Schiffer is here. He's chairman, CEO of Patriarch Equity and DigitalMarketing.com. Uh, now, uh, Eric, your, your companies, they utilize some pretty cutting-edge technology. Does artificial intelligence or robotics uh, enter into any of your uh, uh, commercial interests? We
3: we have uh, technology that we have built on the artificial intelligence side, and I'm using it much like I think Musk is using it in that he's investing to be aware and to be close to what's going on, so he's not surprised. And that's much the way that I'm uh, doing it too, it, to be on the forefront, to ensure that, that, that we're, we have a seat at the table that at some point there isn't going to be this quantum uh, set of discoveries that can give companies this huge set of strategic advantages. Clearly, Google is a big player in this game. And that raises a whole host of questions when you have an organization that has so much uh, intellectual property, and that intellectual property can serve strategic and decision-making uh, uh, capabilities when uh When those strategic decisions are what causes you to win in the marketplace and causes you to have tremendous power from a lobbying perspective and from a public policy
2: perspective. And and who are the main drivers in, in the development of artificial intelligence? Is it the military? Is it biotech? Who? Military and private industry. DARPA
3: on the military side. Um, on the, within the U.S. Uh, is a big player in the in this arena because of the uh, benefits to uh, preservation of the nation and also to ensure that uh, you know there isn't an, an upstart terrorist organization that is investing in this. And look, you've you've seen what ISIS has done with the minimal amount. Of, uh, of technology uh, capability that it has, it absolutely has invested in some low-level forms of artificial intelligence and programming capability in some of the things that it's doing on Twitter, uh, low-level. And so, you know, the military on the U.S. side wants, this, wants this to wants to stay ahead and, and and needs to to protect itself. Uh, but you're also seeing on the private industry side, largely Google and then many startups that are making specific vertical by vertical investments in artificial intelligence and in robotics. And, and then it brings up another question on the robotics side, which is what will happen to capitalism and what will happen to society and in general when you've got this huge set of strategic shifts that will happen, largely. Uh, ones that will uh, relate to manufacturing and some on the service side. So, for instance, you know when you consider back in the uh, Industrial Revolution, 40% of the workforce were on the farm until some of the inventions that came in in the form of uh, uh, changes to how farming was made f- uh, f- more efficient, more productive. And then people moved into the professional services arena and the services arena in general. Well, services has always been one that was considered that would protected because of the human element. But when artificial intelligence gets gets to the point where it can encode emotional intelligence and take some of the best and smartest minds on the emotional intelligence side, and begin to uh, license that technology to machines and to robots and to software that can that can be transferred to other pe- to to many different applications suddenly you've uh, now made what would cost someone $40,000 a year uh, as, a, as a business to hire on the front end side to service clients, uh, replaceable with a machine that can uh, connect emotionally, that can read people's uh, heart rate, their breathing, their pupil dilation, the tone of their voice, and ensure that they give them what they're looking for uh, and have the memory and the recall to be able to do that with precision
2: it's already happening by the way indeed i so mean we're in the midst of a, another jobless recovery i mean where are the jobs well they're apparently they're being uh, performed by by robots well it, it's beginning and and where it's interestingly uh
3: happening is also in the areas that you would not consider so for instance china uh one of the biggest manufacturers on the chinese side for iPhones has experimented recently with the most uh, recent rev of the iPhone 6 and they have replaced about five to ten thousand workers with machines that uh, are doing it at a fraction of the cost without uh, fainting, without uh, needing to eat, without needing to go to the bathroom. And so it's kick- they're kicking out a lot more efficiency. But it brings up a whole host of questions when that begins to scale about the uh, ability for that country to stay stabilized when putting people to work and, and ensuring that people are, are earning some form of a wage has been a way for the Communist Party in, in tacking over to to capitalism to maintain control and maintain some level of societal balance in in the united states and in canada and in other countries where the recovery has been happening but not as fast as we would like there there are these questions which is how are we going to keep people working and what are we going to do when the robots and artificial intelligence begins to build uh, steam with companies who are looking to cut costs and looking for efficiency Will there be a public policy component that will have to be put in place? Will there need to be a tax on these robots to ensure that uh, we're offsetting? Will people need to be retrained? I mean, ultimately, the the future uh, worker will need a combination of both very specialized skills as well as. Great emotional intelligence skills to supersede the ability that the robots will have.
2: All right, Eric, stay where you are. We'll come back and uh, continue to discuss robots and artificial intelligence, more dangerous than nukes. Eric Schiffer, chairman, CEO of Patriarch Equity and DigitalMarketing.com. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Sarrett. Welcome back. Eric Schiffer is with us, advanced tech expert uh, Eric, uh, I want to get to um, uh, microchipping in, in, a, in a few moments, but I want to stay with robots uh, for a few more moments. There was a, an interesting um, research uh, project conducted by uh, Pew Research and uh, Ellen University. And uh, they interviewed or they, they questioned about 1,800 industry experts about the role of, of robots, robot technology in the future. Will they create more jobs? Will they, will they take away jobs? And here's something that just jumped out at me. It says nearly all the experts said things like driverless cars, robotic doctors and nurses, and intelligent digital agents would be part of daily life by 2025. Really? Robotic robotic doctors by 2025? Do you concur with that? Much sooner. Much sooner.
3: Wow. That's a a very conservative Perspective, and you know, driverless cars. I mean, they're already here. They are, yes. But the the doctors—nothing new. I mean, this is uh, some would say uh, they've been here for ten years with some of the way drivers uh, drive. (laughs) Indeed, indeed. uh, So this is these are these are not um, far off. They're very close. When you have a guy who's such a visionary like Musk, who has said that uh, Terminator-like scenarios like the ones i'm describing can be absolutely created from ai and uh, and who as i said has invested in his own artificial intelligence of company not necessarily for investment purposes but but he wants to ensure that he's close to it he wants to keep an eye on the technology as i do to ensure that uh that we don't we, these things don't run amok i mean what he's Basically, what you're doing when you're, when you're getting involved on the artificial intelligence side uh, and what, what the concern is, is that these machines will then begin to develop what is like a neocortex for us, which is this ability to, to sense and perceive and to be able to have conscious thought. And at that point, it then can form alliances with other machines and other systems And depending upon what the uh, underlying code is, it can have the ability to update itself and to gain intelligence and to get smarter. And there are already other programs like this on the artificial intelligence side that have indexed far more data uh, than what Google has and has it in a much easier to pull matrix. So the systems are there. They're, They're in disparate parts. They have not all been strung together. They don't have the the full conscious capabilities yet, but they will.
2: Uh, uh, robots are being used increasingly as caregivers uh, in Japan, uh, helping yeah, the elderly climb true. stairs and so forth. I mean, am, are we going to wake up one morning in the not-too-distant future and, and read about one of these robots turning on on, on uh, what, some elderly person in Japan and have the first robot homicide?
3: I don't think you're going to see it in those contexts. I think where you'll see it will be in areas that involve mistakes initially, and then in areas that will include uh, likely terrorism. And then at some point you'll see it where these systems will run amok and will will take over in, in certain verticals and they'll have to be shut down. And so, again, it comes down to what are we going to do as a society given that we have right now Uh, Before the birthing of this superintelligence, the ability to control it, uh, we may not have the ability to control it at a later point. And we have a responsibility for the future generations to at least get at the table and begin to encode some level of what I would consider to be neocortex-driven
2: cyber morality. How do you you get the attention of politicians who are, let's face it, scientifically illiterate? How do you make the case to Congress, for example, that we need to act now?
3: I think you do it through the prism of the military and through the prism of uh, of uh, ensuring that we 're protecting uh, what could be uh, f- then future generations and we look at it again through uh, factual and anecdotal scenarios and we begin to try to do this through the private sector initially uh, I'm not suggesting regulation I, I, you know, I think that's the last resort I would suggest that we have some level of monitoring uh, that could even be overseen by the military or overseen by different forms of what would be considered to be in the United States homeland security and in Canada uh, similar. Uh, and perhaps uh, we start in that fashion through leadership on the uh, robotic side and with people at Google and with people that would be at musk company and others who can sit down and say, look, Let's look out five years from now, 10 years from now, when we know, and 15 years ago, when we know that this is very likely, and let's put together a cogent, responsible plan that considers the impact of our future uh, men and women and future generations.
2: You may- mentioned R- Ray Kurzweil uh, a little yep. while ago, and and um, I've, I've talked to a number of advocates of the of the transhumanist movement on this program, and a part of the, their message scares me, quite frankly, you know, the merging of of, of humans with robotics uh, in some quest for perhaps immortality. Is that a concern? I mean, are they – is the transhumanist movement perhaps fueling uh, some of the advancements in AI that we really need to be concerned about?
3: I don't think that's fueling it. I think it's uh, complementing to some level. Uh, but that's a different set of motives and drives, and certainly a different set of uh, individuals that who, who are making those investments. They're, it's quite fascinating, and really the premise is is that. By leveraging nanotechnology and leveraging uh, robotics and also leveraging some artificial intelligence, but largely the robotic side with nanotechnology, you can rebuild the cells in your body and you can rebuild the organs and literally stamp out new organs and and live 150, 200, 250 years uh, old. This is all very theoretically possible, and again, a lot of the pieces are already in place, and I think it will happen. I also think that there will be this convergence between technology uh, that may eventually have an organic form and uh, humans, and so, you know, if they were considered to be the Borgs, right? This is coming, too. The, The concern... Beyond that, though, is this, or, or I guess parallel to that, is this other side, which is what Stephen Hawking's and Musk and myself have warned about, which is that artificial intelligence, and, and this is Hawking's talking, has the potential to be the downfall of mankind.
2: All right, and listen, and let me start- jump in here, Eric. We, we'll take a time out. When we come back, we can finish up on that point and then move on to a rather startling headline here. All Americans will be microchipped in three years. I'll get your take on that as well. The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. And uh, we have a few moments uh, remaining with uh, Eric Schiffer, advanced technology expert, as we discuss the possibility of a robot apocalypse, if you will. Artificial intelligence surpassing human intelligence with catastrophic Consequences, and uh, you mentioned before the break, Stephen Hawking has, has weighed in on this, and uh, also voiced similar concerns. Uh, did you want to finish up on, on, on that point before we move on to uh, microchipping uh, humans?
3: Absolutely. Well, I, one of the things that uh, was mentioned, certainly by him and by others, was that if I mean, you know, not only does it have the potential to be the downfall of mankind. Uh, you're talking about this could be the last of mankind, and again, that's Hawking it's Hawking, I mean this is not uh, some uh, for, you know, uninformed uh, person that doesn't have the respect of the scientific community uh, that that is, is saying these things and uh, another research fellow at the future of humanity Institute, Daniel Dewey. Who had said that? You know, the problem is you're building a very powerful, uh, intelligent system that's your enemy, and you're putting it in a cage. And look, to me, you can do certain things uh, with matter in order to achieve a goal. Like, uh, and and with systems like like what we're talking about, they may want to involve intermediate steps, like uh, tearing apart, in the interests of. Making use solar panels, tearing apart the Earth, and uh, and in the process destroying a lot of, of people and and or resources that could be beneficial to to society. So these are these are things that that um, again need to be programmed in. Things that need to be ensured that we have protection against because superintelligence may not take our interests into consideration in these situations. Just like. We don't take root systems or ant colonies into account when we go to construct a building.
2: Well, and, and uh, but if we do this right, I mean, th- th- if we do it correctly uh, and and avoid these pitfalls, artificial intelligence, robotics—I mean, the, the 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 potential is to, to mankind is is unimaginably huge.
3: It it makes nukes seem like uh, squirt guns. I mean, you're talking about. Uh, the ability for uh, for something that is so much smarter, almost commensurate with what we would interpret God for those that believe in a higher power to be like.
2: All right. Uh, I want to talk uh, in the remaining moments uh, about something else I know that uh, you're concerned about, and that is microchipping. Uh, All Americans will be microchipped in, in three years. Is this your prediction? Well, this was
3: an NBC News report. And this floated around for some time, and the concept was that in order to track for both protection and also for benefit, uh, the, the government was considering this. Now, there's been multiple reports since that questioned the validity of that report, but there are people that are already doing this now, and they're doing it for comfort and also convenience. So, for instance, they are they're injecting themselves with chips. So that when they walk near their front door or if they decide to go into certain rooms in the house, then certain pre-programmed things will happen. If they go into their office, then certain things will happen on certain days because it knows it's there. Um, And so this is, again, a benefit of having those kind of things that would occur. It also is a downside because it's, it falls into the, the area of uh, governmental super control and uh, the concept also on the biblical side of the mark of the beast. I mean, these, these are, these are age-old uh, stories that are beginning
2: to potentially become real. Uh, One of the benefits, of course, is, uh, you know, in the way that it's being sort of peddled to us is, well, if you have an an aging uh, parent, maybe someone with dementia, or if you have a small child, uh, you know, wouldn't you want to protect them? Wouldn't you want to to have them chipped so that you can track their whereabouts and they could be recovered in the the event that an elderly person goes wandering or a child disappears? Uh, I mean, we're being sold the positive, the upside. Sure. Uh, but we 're not being told you know the potential downside, or those people that do warn against it are 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 labeled a bunch of tin foil hat wearing kooks well here 's the thing: those same people can also be tracked
3: by predators they can also be tracked by extortionists they can also be tracked by people who want to uh, kidnap and then ransom so these are the These are the flip side arguments of of those same arguments and uh, yes, there are positives, but until there's enough safe harbor and safe protection against people using it in an improper way or a way that can that could create uh, tremendous pain to a family or to loved ones, uh, then then certainly there should not be a mandatory uh, implication. It's, it, this should always be a discretionary choice.
2: I, I believe the American Medical Association has even given their tacit approval. Uh, to to such uh, implants, um, why? I mean, obviously, as you mentioned, there is an, the upside if someone is wheeled into an emergency room, they're unconscious. Such a chip would have, uh, you know, without having to contact their their next of kin, they would have a list of allergies uh, that could be accessed uh, or that would be accessible on such a chip. Uh, but but we also know from uh, uh, chips that are used in in, uh, in, in, in dogs, for example. Uh, these these have produced cancers in animals. I can't figure out why the American Medical Association would be jumping on board.
3: Well, I think it's for those reasons. This There was a, a product called the Verichip, which they've now rebranded Positive ID. And this was a, an actual FDA-approved human implantable microchip. It was marketed by this company and had received approval back in 2004, but it was discontinued in 2010 and there were concerns about just what you're saying i think you can get around the protection on the cancer side the bigger question though is should public policy mandate it and and on the discretionary side will there be enough safe harbor to protect against people usurping it and using it for nefarious reasons and then could you imagine that everyone's chipped and uh and suddenly artificial intelligence gets to the point where it runs amok uh and it can track everyone down and so, you know, I mean, these these kind of doomsday scenarios uh, are not – they're not out – completely outlandish. And so uh, there needs to be fail-safes in all of these things.
2: Uh, RFID chips are now ubiquitous. They are in yes. virtually – implanted in virtually every consumer product that you can imagine. And there's an upside for in terms of, uh, of uh, inventory control and, and so forth. It's, it's, it's great for retailers and wholesalers and so forth. Uh people are concerned though that these RFID chips one day could be used to track us, maybe in you know through the, the, the one that's implanted Correct. in your, your pair of sneakers or so. How far away are we from those types of chips being tracked, let's say, from a satellite? Because now we're told only from a few yards away.
3: The uh the satellite capabilities can be there, but what would happen is it would be a localized system. So for instance, uh yes, it's only a few yards away but but what is coming is what Bill Joy uh had uh, who is the famous CTO uh of, that helped to create Java and and other things at Sun Microsystems had always talked about which is this pervasiveness and when you have systems that can measure uh these RFID chips at at micro levels then you just boot that up a larger level uh and and uh, you can scale it all the way up to a satellite, and it can track everything. And so uh, the capabilities for, for this to be tracked, uh, whether someone has an RFID on a uh, container that's floating across the Pacific Ocean from China or on someone's sneakers, is all, in theory, uh Uh, The technology is there. It just needs to be strung together. Some of the implants that they're talking about, though, would have even greater capability and reach, and some of the technology that's being invented now in Silicon Valley has greater capacity as well. Again, uh, pause should be put forth on all of these things. I don't think you're going to see this uh, happen on a human level in the near future uh, unless it's a
2: discretionary call and 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 what do you think would be the the uh, the triggering mechanism where the the government might uh make it mandatory that that uh, all citizens be chipped
3: well i think you could see it in the cases of wholesale immigration challenges or terrorism so to the extent that terrorism became such such a big issue and it was infiltrated for instance in the united states and in canada and we needed to we needed to ensure uh, the the you know the ability to know who is who uh, I could see it in those situations, but again, it's pretty remote.
2: Uh, and would you be opposed to to chipping uh, Alzheimer patients?
3: I think that there's advantages in those kind of things, and as long as the, as long as there's some protection on the security side. So there need to be several layers of protection to ensure that they that these individuals that have access to the RFID uh, passwords and the uh, the identifications cannot on the inside uh, take advantage. So, for instance, you don't have a rogue employee that's tied in with a, with a bunch of uh, bad guys or or bad actors, or you don't have a potential break-in. Uh, through a Russian gang that is able to steal these codes and then targets these individuals. There would need to be multiple layers of protection.
2: And what about the, the chips now? For example, we have these enhanced driver's licenses where we're told if you want to go into the United States, for example, uh, and you have these in, enhanced driver's license, uh, they can actually – you know, you're three or four cars back in the lineup at, at Customs. And by the time you get there, they've already read your your, your driver's license. Yeah. All the information yeah. is there. Should we be concerned should we be fighting back against uh, against these enhanced driver's licenses if these are intrusive
3: and fighting back I think is I think the cat's out of the bag on that one I do think that if they're intrusive I think that they could be used again uh, by the military and others that want to do surveillance I don't think they are now but certainly they have the capability to. Uh, and but again, you know, good luck trying to unwind that. That will be much tougher. Uh, but you're right; these are these are already at play right now, and uh, and certainly being used, and uh, and, for, and and for the benefit of protecting the homeland at this point.
2: Uh, Eric, I really appreciate uh, your time tonight. I've enjoyed our conversation. Enjoyed it. Leave us with a website. Good Leave us with a website.
3: Uh, you can go to Eric Schiffer, E R I C S C H I F F E com, and follow me on Twitter, and you'll uh, hear uh, more of, of these kinds of things. I know that you uh, come in and host for George Nori. I was on George's show about uh, 10 days ago, and yes, it's available that. For, for those that missed it. And uh, I also, if you're interested in, in business-related articles and what have you, you can also check
2: out some of my pieces on Forbes. Again, appreciate your time, Eric, and uh, I hope we can do this again.
3: I would like that. Have a great night. Take care. Richard.
2: All right. Bye-bye. Eric Schiffer. My website, richardserrett.com, your portal to The Conspiracy Show. Say hello on Twitter at Richard Serrett. And as always, follow the truth. Well, hello there. You have found us. Come on in and sit a spell. Pull up a stool and uh, warm yourself next to the electric bonfire. This is The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett, and I thank you for inviting me into your home. And once again, I want to welcome once again our new affiliate, WRNI 1290 AM in Providence, Rhode Island. I, uh, I hope The Conspiracy Show and WRNI 1290 have a long, happy, and mutually prosperous relationship. Hope. That's the uh, the state motto of Rhode Island, by the way. Hope. Uh, in just a few moments we're gonna make the phone lines available to you for an evening of open lines and I always look forward uh, to the opportunity uh, to speak directly with you on the program we don't do it very often but tonight's the night and we will roll out the phone numbers in uh, just a few moments and uh, it will be up to you to decide uh, where you want to steer this program into the keeping in mind of course this is the conspiracy show we don't teacher strikes or um, garbage strikes. We talk about conspiracies, political subterfuge, geopolitics, UFOs, ETs, cryptozoology, alternative everything. Uh, but first, I want to welcome a, a great friend to the program, into our studio. If you're in the greater Toronto area, you probably are very familiar with a certain bookstore Uh, It used to be located on Queen Street West in Toronto, and it's moved, and we're going to tell you about that as well. Conspiracy Culture uh, has new digs in the Bloor and Lansdowne neighborhood. It's an independently owned source for information on conspiratorial and spiritual subject matter. And uh, while they have a storefront in Toronto, they also uh, have a web store. We'll talk about that as well. And I wanted to bring Conspiracy Culture co-founder and co-owner Patrick White into the studio, as we've done from time to time over the years, to share some of his recommendations Uh, for those of you who are interested in the subject matter uh, and what a vast field it is. Conspiracies, the paranormal, the spiritual, alternative energy, alternative health, UFOs, ETs. You'll find it all in book form, DVD form, magazine form, at Conspiracy Culture. Uh, So here, uh, with another uh, installment of his Essential Conspiracy Reading List is, I say, a good friend of the program, Patrick White. Hey, Patrick, how are you?
4: Richard, thanks for having me, buddy. My pleasure. First of all, uh, where have you relocated to? Okay, so we've picked up the shop and we've moved it to 1344 Bloor Street West. So we're on the north side of Bloor, just a little bit west of Lansdowne. So we're a, a two minute walk from the Lansdowne subway station. All right. Now, as I mentioned,
2: uh, you've got the storefront here in Toronto, but for all of our listeners in the U.S. as well uh, that may not get into Toronto, you've also got, you know, you're also selling these books online. Can you tell us a little bit about the web store?
4: Yeah, right now it's, you know, it's still in its early stages, so it's a fairly modest web shop, but we do have some select items available for purchase for those who are located in uh, cyberspace. So we have some, you know, choice titles available and we've priced them very competitively. So regardless as to where you look around the web, uh, we feel that you'll still feel confident purchasing the items through our shop.
2: Okay, let's talk about uh, some of the must-have titles. Uh, For those uh, that are just maybe getting into this field and they want a a primer or, you know, they want one of the classics if we're talking about uh, conspiracies, uh, lay a few titles on us.
4: Sure. So if you're looking for something that's a little you know, a little bit more classic that you would need for your shelf. Uh, Obviously, 1984 by George Orwell, which was uh, originally published in 1949. Great book. Gets into public manipulation, uh, government surveillance, perpetual war, you know, independent thinking equating to thought crimes. Uh, Great book. Uh, Titles like Rockefeller File, uh, None Dare Call a Conspiracy, written by Gary Allen, the Carol Quigley tome, Tragedy and Hope, which was originally published in 1966, which pretty much covers 1880 to 1963 and f- focuses on the economic problems brought about by World War I. That was my uh, en-
2: sort of entree or entry into this whole field was, was Tragedy and Hope by Carol Quigley, who was uh, Bill Clinton, President Clinton's professor at Georgetown University. And he had, from what I understand, access. He was sort of the, the Rockefeller family's official historian. Uh, and uh, a chronicler. So he had access to all of their, their files and and, uh, information. And I mean, he wasn't writing about these secret societies as a warning. He basically subscribed to a lot of their ideas. Did he not?
4: Oh, for sure. And I can only imagine what he was privy to being able to access all those materials. So the tragedy and hope is, is definitely a great book. We carry his Anglo American establishment as well. Um, you know, uh, other titles, uh, for example, World Without Cancer and The Creature from Jekyll Island by G. Edward Griffin. Uh, we also carry Transformation of America and Access Denied by Kathy O'Brien and Mark Phillips, which is uh, essentially a documented autobiography of a victim who was put through government mind control programs, i.e. Uh, MK Ultra and Project Monarch. So we, we carry a lot of essential reading uh, you know, another book that would be considered must-have for the shelf would be *Ruled by Secrecy* by Jim Mars. You know, he was just here in Toronto. Uh, you helped host the shows; fantastic. It was remarkable. Yes. Yeah. So those are just some of the titles that you would, you know, pretty much have to have for your shelf. Um, there's been some recent releases that have come out that are are definitely worth taking a look at. If you wanted to discuss some of those. Yes, please. What's uh?
2: Well, what's sort of number one on your list of uh, of new releases in the conspiracy field?
4: Well, I was just up north with a bunch of UFO guys at a retreat last night. Uh, so on the topic, Richard Dolan has a, a book that's been recently released called UFOs for the 21st Century. A uh, fantastic book for anybody that's read anything by Richard Dolan. This just is another one of his tremendous books. Gets into ancient aliens. Uh, gets into modern encounters, abductions, people who channel uh, alien entities, gets into sort of like the bizarre sciences and the black budget programs, uh, why the cover-up is essentially bound to end really soon, and what he foresees in the not-too-distant future with disclosure and pretty much the whole UFO phenomenon. So for anybody who's interested in UFOs or aliens, regardless as to your level of interest, this, this book here would be uh, – I would recommend it for sure. That's a, uh, UFOs for the
2: 21st Century Mind by Richard Dolan. Richard Dolan, correct. Yeah, and, and this is the author of uh, uh, two real seminal uh, works, UFOs and the National Security State, and he takes it all the way from the, sort of the mid-1940s up into um, – well, I think volume late... two goes into the 70s, doesn't it?
4: Yes, is... and then he also wrote the AD, the After Disclosure as right. well with Price Zabel – Exactly. Yeah, Richard Dolan is a phenomenal writer
2: and a phenomenal speaker. It's interesting that that Dolan and 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 Grant Cameron as well. They've uh, you know these were sort of uh, well, Dolan is a is a trained historian, and they were all you know sort of facts and documents. And of course, Grant Cameron has scoured all the presidential libraries, but the two of them now have sort of taken it to the next level, where it's it's not necessarily just about you know the documents. It's like they're they're um, they're getting into the metaphysical aspect of it, which I find very interesting.
4: It is, and when you have a, a pair of brains like those and you apply it to a subject matter such as this, you really do end up with very fascinating material. So if you have the opportunity to pick up anything by either Dolan or Cameron, I would I would recommend doing so. What's the
2: most uh, a popular area within uh, the, the the conspiracy or paranormal field for you? When people come in... Are they looking for, is it mainly, is it or first and foremost, uh, uh, UFO ET material? Or are they looking for alternative energy, alternative health? Uh, or is it the conspiratorial?
4: Uh, different strokes for different folks. So it's it's right across the board. On any given day, you have people coming in for looking for different subject matter. But when when something happens, current events, you know, when something happens out there in the world that really shakes things up, people usually come in looking for materials that are related to whatever the event was. You know, so for example, when, uh, when the Boston bombings took place and there was a lot of discussion about false flags and so on and so forth, people were coming in and they were looking for materials dealing with uh, historical examples of false flags. So whatever's happening out there really sort of drives the majority of the interest, but generally it's anything and everything.
2: Patrick White is here, co founder, co owner of Conspiracy Culture, along with his uh, lovely bride and uh, partner, Kadina, although she's a little Mike shy, so she's <laughs> sitting here <laughs> next to Patrick. Uh, Patrick, again, uh, moved locations from Queen Street, and now you're out on Bloor near the Lansdowne subway station. Give us the, uh, the location again. Sure,
4: it's 1344 Bloor Street West, Toronto, Ontario, Canada, M6H1P2.
2: And uh, you, you just recently this month opened the new location, um, August 22nd, was
4: yes, it? Yes, August 22nd. Okay, and people are finding you? They're, they know where you are? Oh, we've been busy from open to close every day since we've opened. It's been great. Great. Okay, so do you have
2: any more titles for us? Anything uh, on the recent... Uh...
4: Yeah, uh, Andrew Collins has released a book recently called Gobekli Tepe with the introduction by Graham Hancock. So I don't know if anybody's aware of Gobekli Tepe. Uh, site in eastern Turkey, uh, phenomenal. This it's, uh, it's basically an exploration of this giant megalithic complex site in Turkey, uh, who built it, uh, how it gave rise to legends regarding the foundations of civilization. It details the layout of the site, the architecture, uh, some phenomenal carvings in the stones. It explores how it was built as a reaction to a global cataclysm, And it gets into how it was essentially the watchers from the Book of Enoch and the Anunnaki gods of Sumerian tradition who created it. Uh, Insane, ridiculous sight. I think they discovered it in 94 and it was only made public in 2010. And and why why such a, a delay?
2: I mean, are they trying? To, were they trying to suppress this uh, this just, discovery?
4: Just to keep it secret because they realized it was such a significant find that people would be shutting it down at first word. And uh, the book is really well written. I mean, anything by Collins and especially Graham Hancock. Oh, he's a heavyweight for sure. Yeah, so that uh, that I would definitely recommend. And something along a similar vein. Uh, released by Michael Pye and Kirsten Daly, is Lost Secrets of the Gods, which is a compilation of essays and articles by individuals such as Jim Mars, uh, Robert Shaw, Anthony West, Nick Redfern, mm-hmm. Laird Scranton, gets into ancient secret societies, gets into the giant lore. Uh, it c- makes connections between ancient Egypt and ancient China, Uh, Great book, full of great information, super reader-friendly. Don't have to commit too much time to it because it's, you know... Just short essays, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. um, I had uh, Micah Hanks and uh, Paul
2: von Ward and and Jim Mars uh, when I sat in on Coast to Coast uh, the last several weeks. And uh, Jim Mars, of course, his essay is at the end, and it ties it all together beautifully, as only Jim can do. Listen, Patrick, uh, really appreciate you coming in. Again, the new location? 1344 Bloor Street West. Conspiracyculture.com. You'll also be our uh, official vendor at uh, Follow the Truth, the Conspiracy Show Summit in November. Looking forward to that.
4: Yes, me too. It's going to be a lot of fun.
2: All right, Patrick, thank you so much. Open lines. Open lines when the Conspiracy Show continues right after this. All right, just saying uh, goodbye to dear friends uh, Patrick and Kadina from Conspiracy Culture. And uh, what a wonderful uh, essential reading list. Uh, they always bring some great book titles. And um, I encourage you to pick some of those up. Rule by Secrecy, again, Jim Mars, uh, along with Carol Quigley's Tragedy and Hope. Those were my two sort of initial books into this whole area. And my life has never been the same. <laughs> All right. We are doing open lines uh, now until the top of the hour. And uh, again, we don't get a chance to do this very often. So if you want to get it said, you have a question, comment, you can ask me anything about the show. If you uh, if you have a, a suggestion for an upcoming show, if you have a question based on a previous show, uh, maybe you, you didn't hear something that you, uh, you needed to hear or you missed something, We can take care of that, but of of course, we can always uh, uh, delve into uh, geopolitics, UFOs, ETs. Uh, You tell me where you want to take the program for the next 45 minutes or so. Uh, Let me also remind you, Season 3 of the Conspiracy Show, Monday nights on Vision TV, 10 p.m. Eastern, 10 p.m. Eastern across uh, Canada. Now, uh, this coming Monday... The episode will be – this is a controversial one and, uh, you know, many people sort of dismissed it when it came out and it's not going away. It probably will never go away and that is the whole question of uh, President Barack Obama's eligibility to be president. Is, constitutional, is he constitutionally eligible? And, uh, of course, we're all familiar with the birther movement that uh, began questioning uh, some of the documents, the release of his long-form birth certificate, uh, etc. So we'll delve into that whole uh, area. Uh, the birthers and Obama's birth certificate. That's Monday, 10 p.m. Eastern on Vision TV, the Conspiracy Show, season three. And after after the show, uh, log on to theconspiracyshow dot com and weigh in on the episode. You can vote, skeptic, believer, and uh, you can engage with uh, some fellow viewers, uh, debate, if you will, online. The Conspiracy Show. Dot com. All right, we're going to, is it Dan in Toronto? Dan, welcome. Hello. How are you? How are you?
5: Oh, fine. I've been trying to get a hold of you. I've listened to all your shows and that. Um, i seen a spaceship when I was working at a carpet clean company in Hamilton in 1977 in Stony Creek, Ontario. I was We, we were in an apartment building uh, down on the lake, and this... Uh, on the 12th floor, and all the power went out, and there was a humming going on, and we looked out. There was no balconies. We looked out the window. The the uh, boss's brother and I we were cleaning the carpets and that, and everything shot off. The phone wouldn't work, and that lady almost had a heart attack, the lady we were cleaning the apartment for. And, and this ship went by, but it wasn't a saucer. It was It was as long as a football field. It was... So many store like it was for like five stories high and it had these slot windows but you couldn't see through them or anything like that and it was all aluminum color. Uh, now I don't know what he ever said anything about it and I don't know what ever happened because I don't know if the media suppressed it or what.
2: Now was this the same incident that you you mentioned in Hamilton in nineteen seventy seven or is this a yeah, separate it, incident? It was
5: in Stony Creek which was part, part of Hamilton. it wasn't part of Hamilton, it was like uh uh it was like a suburb outside. size. Right.
2: Right. It's since been sort of amalgamated. Uh, and, and what
5: happened Amazon. was this ship come up from the, like, Lake Ontario. I don't didn't see it come out of Lake Ontario, but it came from the water, and it was heading towards the escarpment, the the Mount, mountain brow and everything like that.
2: And you said this thing was about the length of five football fields? Oh, no,
5: about, about the length. About, uh, I'd say about a one and a half football, one and a half it, was, football it was it was rectangular because on the other side of the street there was like poles hydro poles and everything and the thing is it didn't take out those poles i mean it was wide from from the front of the building
2: did it make any sound
5: yeah it was just humming just humming yeah it was like if you went around uh hydro substation and that. right
2: right and and uh uh was it? Uh, I mean, how fast was it going? Was it just kind of hovering? Oh, it was
5: it was it was just like it was just gliding by.
2: Right. Th- these uh, this sounds similar to. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the the Stephenville, uh, Texas uh, sighting uh, back a few years ago that were um, heading in the direction of the Crawford Ranch, of course, which was the uh, sort of the uh, the ranch. Well, it's the ranch belonging to uh, George. Uh, uh... walker bush george w bush Oh, okay and uh, uh... people reported and when i say people i'm talking about witnesses some of them not, were in, not
5: him or or his no no he didn't see it. It's, in that no
2: not we, we don't know that he saw it at least if he did he's not saying anything but that we're talking about former uh... uh not former uh, law enforcement officials right. uh... who who uh, saw this thing very similar to what you're describing although i believe it was triangular and again we're talking about no well, uh, i don't
5: think they are coming saucers
2: no, 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 I, I agree, but th- we're talking about craft, crafts that yeah, were, were uh, hundreds ship. of yards.
5: Yeah, and, and like I say, it was like five stories high, and, and it was all aluminum colored. That's I interesting,
2: mean, uh, five stories high, because, uh, again, going back to Stephenville, one witness described it as a, a, a box store, like a giant box store hovering in the air, It's so large that it obliterated the, the sky. You looked up and you couldn't see the sky because this thing was so huge. That sounds like what you saw. Yeah. What do you think, uh, Dan, are, are these things extraterrestrial or are they some sort of super sophisticated anti-gravitic well, device? I
5: don't, they're, I don't device? think they're uh, doing, like, if they're here, I don't think they're doing anything to harm, uh, because if they were going to harm us and they were that far advanced beyond our technology, they could easily wipe us
2: out completely. But something that large, other people must have seen it.
5: Well, yes, there had to be other people. The people in the building, I, I don't know if they're alive anymore. Uh, there were a lot of senior citizens and stuff like that living in that, that those residences.
2: Uh, do you remember the exact date in 1977? I mean, how could you forget oh, a date like that? Oh,
5: um, because I hadn't gone, to, uh, hadn't gone to school yet, uh, uh, college. Uh, I'd say around uh, April, May. April, May of 1977. Yes, I was living in the east end of Hamilton.
2: Well, uh, let's, let's throw that out there, and maybe other people, other people saw something. Let me take you back I mean, I'd be surprised
5: if, if it would work towards discovering something, because the thing is, I know uh, that, that something's out there, and I mean, I've possibly seen other stuff. Uh, I have these feelings like something's watching me, because maybe I did see
1: something.
2: Uh, were, was there any missing time uh, after the after you saw this craft? Did you take note of what time it was was there was there a, a, a time gap
5: um, no it 's like like I say because there was no balconies, you could only see as, as the tail end of it went went by you could see like i mean it was moving, but the problem was it wasn 't like zoom it was there and gone it was It was just like it, it come like like if you were to go down to the docks and you've seen a big ship coming through a canal or something like that, right? It just glided by,
2: just floating by. Well, other and, people and, and must have seen is, that.
5: I mean, it didn't hit nothing because nothing, no sparks went off or anything like that. Uh, and I mean, all the power went off in the building and stuff like that. And yet, like people weren't after afterwards clamoring downstairs to get outside and look at it, see what it, what, you know, to describe it. And I mean, there was no. There was no emergency vehicle showing up or anything like that. That is
2: odd. All right. Listen, Dan, I appreciate the call. Fascinating uh, account. Uh, let me throw that out there. Let me take people back. 37 years. Yeah. April, May of 1977 in uh, in Hamilton. Uh, is there anyone else out there who saw something that night? Uh, again, very interesting similarities between that and uh, not only Stephenville in Texas, uh, but there are uh, many, many... Uh, reports of large craft, and we're not, we're not talking again about saucer-shaped craft. We're talking about, imagine a box store, like a Walmart, cruising by, hovering by, almost silently, just a few hundred feet, maybe above tree level, not making much of a sound. That's what we're talking about. All right, open lines now until the top of the hour. Four one six. 416 in the Greater Toronto Area. And out of town, toll free, 1 740 uh, Perhaps you want to weigh in on uh, this Ebola scare. There was a recent uh, a study related to uh, the Ebola virus, uh, which states that the, uh, the virus is rapidly mutating making it difficult to diagnose and treat. This was a a study conducted on the initial patients who were infected with the virus in Sierra Leone, which revealed more than 400 genetic modifications of the Ebola virus, which might prove uh, detrimental for the ongoing treatment measures, but also to the vaccines that are uh, supposedly under clinical trials for future treatment of the Ebola virus. And, of course, we learned uh, uh, recently that the Center for Disease Control has a patent on one strain of the Ebola virus, which is a real head-scratcher. Researchers at the Broad Institute in Massachusetts and Harvard University warn that the Ebola virus is constantly undergoing mutation. The findings show that the future treatment options, including vaccines, as well as diagnosing of the disease, will be very difficult and less effective as mutations continue. As of now, the researchers have analyzed around 99 Ebola viral genomes. Since the, viral, or since the uh, Ebola outbreak in West Africa in March, more than 1,550 people have died. Earlier in August, a new viral strain of the Ebola virus, uh, different from the one being observed in West Africa, was detected from uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo, posing a threat to millions of lives all over the world. Uh, we're also uh, hearing that Ebola is now spreading into major West African cities. And it's we're, uh, being reported that uh, West Africa Ebola cases are up 550 in a week. Now, get this. Five co-authors of the latest Ebola study have died from Ebola. All right, let's say hello to uh, Ron, uh, checking in from the, the Six Nations Reserve Hello, Ron. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Good morning. Hello, Richard. How are you? Very well, thank you.
6: Yes, I'd like to relay a few stories that I have, um, starting in 2012. Um, In 2012, I think I've seen maybe, maybe from then to now, maybe 40 unidentified flying objects and some things that I could identify.
2: Now, are you out uh, a Hagersville way, Oshwegan, Cayuga, whereabouts uh, are you?
6: When I uh, said it, the, the things that I did see, I was closer to Hagersville at the time.
2: Okay. Now, since 2012, you've uh, you've seen 40 unidentified flying objects.
6: Well, I've seen a lot of them that try to look like stars, but they're not stars. And at one point in 2012, I had a laser pointer. And I pointed at one of these stars, and I started going SOS to it. And then I went one, one, two, one, two, three, just to know that, you know, I could count. And I just sort of flushed it off, and it went in the house afterwards. The following night, I had an occasion to go outside, because my bathroom was outside, and right over top of my house, rather than maybe 20 to 30 feet, I had three flying objects over my house that were shaped like old-fashioned irons, and they were about the size of a stretched limousine. And they were doing a triangular configuration, uh, all three points, and uh, one would leave one point and go to the other one, and they would all shift at the same time but what i noticed on them because my light on the house illuminated them a little bit they had a flat side which on the back end of them it seemed like the back of them um, they had a green and blue light in the center there was a large white light and in the front there was a red light
2: anyone else uh, did anyone else see these uh, these crafts
6: uh, there was about 2 o'clock in the morning, and I was home alone, so I really didn't get to see any, you know, nobody else could see them. I tried to uh, report it, but I was just ho-hum because I didn't have a photograph.
2: Uh, now, recently, this is uh, interesting because just recently I, I get word from uh, a, a reporter at the uh, Brantford Expositor. Brantford's my my hometown, and uh, Susan Gamble, uh, who just wrote a piece on 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 me, a very nice piece in the uh, the Expositor earlier in the week, uh, that a new a brand new MUFON group has opened up in Brantford. Uh, so finally, people uh, down that way in in southwestern Ontario have a a new UFO watch group that they can uh, report these sightings to. So you might want to uh, uh, check out that group and and get in touch with them. Now, uh, what what is the most recent sighting you've had, Ron, on the Six Nations Reserve?
6: Uh, My most recent sighting was 2013. Uh, It was April. And where my house was located is up on a, a bank overlooking a creek of a little valley. And... That morning, I got up at 2 o'clock in the morning. I was going to go use the bathroom. I went outside, and there, where the trees weren't, they didn't have any leaves on it at yet. And uh, over the trees, I seen this flying saucer, a bona fide flying saucer coming toward me. And it stopped over top the creek, which is Boston Creek, And it lowered itself down so that it went a bit about 100 feet over top the creek. And then it started coming up the creek very, very slowly and illuminating the creek and its bank as it went up. It heightened itself to go over top the bridge area to the road below me. And it went around the corner and it was gone. I didn't have anything to photograph it with but it was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. It moved effortlessly and silent. It had a red, reddish-orange light that went around the outside of it, the very rim of it, and it uh, seemed like there were different blocks of letters in each one of those little uh, pigments that went around. It was going around in a clockwise motion.
2: Listen, Ron, I, I really appreciate you uh, you checking in with us tonight, and uh, thank you for these detailed accounts. If you see any more, please don't hesitate to give us a call. Or well, thank are you... you
6: very much, Richard. It's, uh, it's a wonderful thing being able to talk about it to anyone that would understand.
2: I appreciate it, and uh, Six Nations, is a, if you ever get a chance, it's a beautiful part of uh, the province, uh, out Hagersville Way, Oshweig and Cayuga, especially in the fall. You want to take a nice drive? That's yes. the place. Be All right. very
6: nice to you could come out.
2: Okay, Ron, thank you so much. Open lines here on The Conspiracy Show, 416-360-0740. Toll free from out of town, 1-866-740-4740. And welcome back. Open lines, a rare opportunity. Uh, just you, me, and the telephone here on The Conspiracy Show. Let me give you the numbers one more time. 416 360 740 that's in the Greater Toronto area, 416-360-0740, and toll-free from just about anywhere, 1-866-740-4740. Uh, when he was, uh, a, a he, he, for a while he was kind of a perennial, well, every four years he would run for president. Uh, and um, I always liked Ron Paul, former U.S. Congressman Ron Paul. Just a a simple country doctor uh, with what I thought was some pretty simple homespun wisdom and common sense. Uh, But I was always curious as to why he was so silent about 9-11. There were a number of uh, uh, times that that he was asked and he just kind of brushed it off. And part of me understands why. When you're running for president, uh, talking about 9-11 – potentially being an inside job is sort of the equivalent of, of, of kissing the third rail in politics. But now that he's sort of retired from politics uh, and left his son Rand Paul to sort of uh, pick up the mantle, although I must say Rand is no Ron Paul, um, he's now talking about 9-11. And he is now suggesting that the U.S. government knew about the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks before the incident occurred inside the country. He said, I believe that if we ever get the full truth about 9-11, we'll find out that our government had it in the records exactly what the planes were, or at least close to it. This was um, uh, Paul speaking on a, a radio interview with Money and Markets host Charles Goyette last Friday. He continued, you already mentioned that the U.S. government had been warned that something was going to happen, he added. Does that prove the fact that our president and others actually sat down and laid the plans and did this? I don't think it does, he said. The former presidential candidate also noted that the crimes committed by former al-Qaeda leader Osama bin Laden were minor compared to the harm the United States has caused since the 2001 attacks. Our own government did more harm to the liberties of the American people than bin Laden did, Paul said. All right, let's go back to the phones, and uh, I believe it's Tony checking in from New York State. Tony, welcome. How are you?
7: Hey, Richard. Uh, I'm good. I just have a quick uh, story to relate uh, of an experience that I uh, went through over about 15 years ago. I was driving uh, delivery on a, on a countywide route.
2: What part of the, uh, of the state are you?
7: Uh, upstate New York, near Oops. Buffalo, between Rochester, Buffalo area. So
2: Erie County, Niagara County?
7: Oh, uh, Monroe area. Monroe,
2: okay, I know it,
7: yep. Okay. Okay, this experience occurred about 15 years ago. I was a driver delivering, I stopped at a senior towers, and uh, just coincidentally enough, was making a delivery. I stopped, there was some elderly people entering, uh, exiting their vehicles, going into the senior tower, and, um... As they were walking, the the older women were talking about the experience they just came from. They, had, they were relating to themselves as they were walking. I, I just happened to be there at the right time, and I overheard it. They claimed that they were at this outdoor, uh, like, not an auction, but like a flea market thing, and there was a table, and there was uh, some things on the table, and they said they looked up in the sky, they saw these two clouds meeting, they saw this dow just go, come off the table and go up in the air, and ascend up into where the clouds were meeting. And that wasn't the only strange thing. They also related that the strange stuff saw from the sky. I think uh, uh, in ufology, that would be considered like angel hair.
5: Okay, right.
7: If you've heard of that. Yes, um, yes. And I was just amazed by this. And, and I stood there in just kind of amazement. Now, I didn't go to the scene where they were describing it just happened, that they were just coming from it. I didn't. I had to go on the route, so I had to leave there quickly do a delivery. Uh, years later, I would read... Uh, the accounts in, uh, say, uh, Bud Hopkins' uh, testimonial books, there, you know, right. of of his uh, his patients or clients describing, you know, uh, UFO abduction scenarios where uh, women uh, were take were impregnated and they would uh, uh, the fetuses would be removed and then they would try nurturing these fetuses. The woman would re- be returned to the craft or the ship and they would see the fetuses and they would meet with the, the developing you know children uh to give them no- emotional support and then uh they would use dolls uh because these creatures these uh i believe they're nephilim uh would couldn't relate emotionally because they lacked the h- human emotional capacities and they the the dolls were brought in as like a like a like a, you
2: know, a tool. Right, right.
7: Well, so that's what I got, Richard. I just wanted to share that. It's, I know it's kind of a unique testimony, and probably you, you won't hear too many like that.
2: No, I have not heard um, that bef- some, anything resembling that before, Tony, and I, I really appreciate you checking in from, from New York.
7: Richard, the other thing is you mentioned MUFON, uh, a pretty good organization. We knew some people. Uh, we did lose a negative to them. Uh, one of the triangular craft pictures we had from another area in the Catskills. Just a thought.
2: I appreciate it. Interesting. Okay. Appreciate okay, it, Tony. Richard. Okay, Uh Do we have time, Tim, for another call, or are we heading into a break here? Okay. Let's uh, let's head on into a break. When we come back, uh, I think we've got Fred in Philadelphia. If you've got a line, hold on to it. If not, 416-360-0740. Toll free, 1-866-740-4740. This is The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Open lines now until we dim the lights. Welcome back. An evening of open lines now until the top of the hour. Uh, Interesting story on NBC News. Photos of Yeti footprints hit the auction block. Ardent believers in the existence of a mythical creature known as the Yeti may be excited to learn that rare photographic evidence, in quotes, of this mysterious beast is now up for auction. In 1951, British mountaineer Eric Earl Shipton was leading an expedition on Mount Everest when he took a series of photographs of what he believed might be the footprints of a bipedal, ape-like creature known as the Yeti. The photos sparked a debate in Europe about the existence of the uh, a mythical creature, according to uh, Christie's. Now, uh, I just wanted to mention that story because I just received, speaking of, uh, of Britain, I just received uh, an email uh, from someone going by the name of Night Fury who listens to the, uh, the show, the conspiracy show, via the, the podcast. He says, I was listening to a podcast of your recent show on Bigfoot and I wanted to tell you my story. I'm from the U.K., and I was working at a summer camp from June to August 2009, but this was in Massachusetts, uh, from 7.30 a.m. to 9 p.m. I was with the children, and after that was my uh, own free time. Once or twice a week, the kitchen staff would set up a gathering in the nearby forest. It was basically an excuse to party and have a few beers. My friend and I were running late one night, and the other lads went ahead with us while we got ready. At around 10.30 p.m., we decided to leave for the party. We made our way around the stable in silence, as to not rouse the horses and alert the camp security bosses, with only starlight and our small small torches to guide us. We walked through a clearing, or uh, we walked through a clearly trodden path of tall grass left by others attending the party, and had some good banter on the way. Either side, the grass was about four to five feet high, just a guess, as I'm five foot nine. As we made our way through the wind, or sorry, as we made our way through, the wind suddenly stopped. And so did our conversation, as there was an eerie mood in the air. Around five to six feet in front of us, some sort of giant creature moved from one side of the tall grass to the other. It briefly looked at us both with huge glowing eyes, reflecting the light of our torches. He's a Brit, so I'm gathering he means flashlights. And continued on its way. My friend and I were frozen with fear, and as soon as the creature left, we ran as fast as we could to the party. As soon as we arrived, people were making jokes about how scared we looked, but we didn't dare tell them what we saw for fear of ridicule. Eventually, we let slip to a couple of the guys about what we saw, but in a jokey fashion so they wouldn't take the mickey. I cannot explain to this day what I saw, and although I didn't detect malevolence from this creature, I still get chills thinking about this incident. In hindsight, I'm convinced this creature was Bigfoot, or some sort of hominid. My friend is six foot six and this creature towered above him, so I'd estimate its size to be about seven to eight feet tall. The other thing the other strange thing was the total silence in the forest. Even when the creature pulled the grass trees back, there was no sound at all, no rustling, no birds, no branch breaking underfoot, absolutely no sound. After hearing your show, I just wanted to tell my story and get it off my chest without ridicule. Many thanks, keep up the good work, kind regards. Uh Brins, he signs off. Appreciate the email. And uh, he was referring to a recent uh, story we did, our show on Bigfoot, but uh, sightings here in Ontario, primarily Algonquin Park, not too far, a couple hours from here. Uh, Hundreds of sightings up in Algonquin Park. All right, uh, to the the city of brotherly love we go. Is it Fred in Philadelphia? Fred, welcome to the Conspiracy Show. Good morning.
8: Thank you. Uh, I know this is not a sensationalist topic, but I think it's very important. Uh, I have have had a lot of experience with reviewing patents at a federal depository library and uh, basically I just want to say this is happening all over the world where uh, all the sources of information are being chopped up into non-linkable databases.
2: How do you mean? I'm not sure I follow, Fred. What do you mean they're being chopped up?
8: Well, you're not going to have the ability to educate yourself independently, politically, uh, by using free resources or even, even... going to college will be difficult it'll be difficult to do this
2: you're saying that that uh, that that patents that are readily available let's say online where you can you can read about them that information is being systematically destroyed
8: i'm saying that the, i'm i'm saying that the uh the uh way the way to use information your evaluation of it is is going to be hindered you have it, it, there's always information available, Richard. But uh, whether we realize it or not, we always categorize it. We always put a importance to every piece of information. We always evaluate it, and that's going to be impossible because the system is changing, deliberately changing, so that the First Amendment is not operating. It's going to be an Orwellian uh, type of a information system.
2: So we we would be di- we would be uh, denied access to to knowledge essentially, is what you're saying.
8: Uh, yeah, to mean to meaningful knowledge.
2: Meaningful knowledge, across. right? This is a, as a system of control, presumably.
8: Yeah, the, the, basically, uh, uh, up until this point, you've always had the author. Even if it wasn't perfect, you had the author communicating with the reader. Uh, now, I believe the government has found a way to to of twist that pipeline to restrict it, and in a way that you don't realize.
2: All right, Fred. Uh, I, 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 admittedly, I, I mean, I don't necessarily understand this entirely, uh, but it's it's interesting nonetheless. And, uh, you know, if you have any other information that you could uh, gather together for us at some point and, and check in with us once again, I'd appreciate it. Fred is in uh, Philadelphia. Thanks for that. Open lines uh, for another 10 minutes or so. 416-360-0740. 416-360-0740. That's in the Greater Toronto area. And, of course, toll-free from out of town for all our affiliates. South of the 49th, ninth, 866 Four seven forty. Uh, I've done a number of programs on the uh, the dangers of EMF, uh, an electro or, sorry an EMP, an electromagnetic pulse, uh, which could be caused by the detonation of a small nuclear device at a fairly low altitude. Uh, but it could al- it could also happen uh, as a result of a, a coronal mass ejection, and, and this is of great concern because all of our electrical grids. In the United States and Canada, you, you know how interdependent they are and, and connected uh, they could they're not they 're not uh, shielded properly at least we know they 're not in the United States'm uh, not sure exactly you know what the status is here in Canada, but there is great concern among uh, some of the people that i 've had on this show, Michael Malouf and others, uh, that an EMP event it 's not a question of if it 's a question of when whether again it 's coronal mass ejection or some sort of uh, um, terrorist or rogue state attack. Uh, and we would all be left, f- you know, freezing in the dark. Uh, now, interesting story I, I see here. I, I, where is this? Uh, this is I'm trying to see the, uh, the source of this so I can give the t- – no, I don't have it here. But it's, the article is called Electromagnetic Warfare is Here. A briefcase-sized radio weapon could wreak havoc in our networked world. It's by William A. Radasky. And uh, he says, in the 2001 action movie, Oceans 11, criminals use an electromagnetic weapon to black out a portion of Las Vegas. I remember that movie. Very futuristic, you may say, but the threat is real and growing. The problem is growing because the technology available to attackers has improved even as the technology being attacked has become more vulnerable. Our infrastructure increasingly depends on closely integrated high-speed electronic systems operating at low internal voltages. That means they can be laid low by short, sharp pulses, high in voltage but low in energy, output that can now be generated by a machine the size of a suitcase, batteries included. Electromagnetic attacks are not only possible, they're already happening. One may be underway as you read this. Even so, you'd probably never hear of it. These stories are typically hushed up for the sake of security or the victim's reputation. Occasionally, though, an incident comes to light. In May of 2012, for instance, the Korea Herald reported that over 500 aircraft flying in and out of South Korea's Incheon and Gimpo airports reported GPS failures, as did hundreds of ships and fishing boats in the sea west of Incheon Airport. The source of the EM fields was traced to the North Korean city of Kaesong, about 50 kilometers north of Incheon. South Korean officials indicated that North Korea had imported truck-based jamming systems in 2010 that had the capability to jam GPS signals. These officials speculated that one purpose of the jamming was to interfere with South Korea's highly digital society, or perhaps the North Koreans were conducting an experiment using South Korea as their beta tester. In the decades past, the few electronic systems that existed worked at higher voltages than today's machines and at lower frequencies, making them less sensitive to EM disruption. Today, though, any digitally controlled infrastructure presents a target. Uh, I'm going to post this story on the website, Richardserret.com, and I'll also tweet it if you want to check it out. I think it's worth a, rear, uh, a read. Electromagnetic warfare is here. All right. Uh, let's say hello to Mark, who is in Toronto this morning. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show, Mark.
9: Good evening, Mr. Serrett. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Likewise, sir. Um, uh, I I take it you know Toronto fairly well?
2: Uh, Reasonably. uh, I've called Toronto home for the better part of 30 years.
9: Okay. Uh, This this goes back to around 2000. Now, I did write this uh, this, uh, at the time I wrote this sighting up uh, in detail. Um, Are you still there?
2: Yes, listening.
9: Okay, sorry. Uh, I have my radio off here. So, Thank you. Um, I, I wrote this up, and my brother uh, in Vancouver was in MUFON at the time. Right. And uh, I sent it to him with detailed diagrams and uh, the formulas I used to calculate the altitude, etc. But I never heard anything back from, he, from him or MUFON about it that I was expecting to get maybe a sighting report. But what happened was it was uh, um, probably early November or middle November, and it was one of those summers where the summer had gone on quite long. We had a lovely summer. And uh, you know that when uh, the summer ends in the Toronto area, we get that northwest wind coming down from Manitoba, coming down the trough, as we say. And, and you know, you can tell the summer's gone. Right. Uh, exactly. Yeah. It was blustery. There was a high wind, and uh, there were some uh, some high clouds, and you could uh, lots of high clouds. It was fairly overcast, and you could see see them being blown across the city. You know. Right, right across from from west to east.
2: I got about two minutes here. Um.
9: Okay, I was at Bloor and Lansdowne, uh, where and um, where I used to live, and uh, I, I still maintained a, a little uh, garage uh, uh, workshop there. Uh, after I moved up from the area, um, I looked up in the sky, and uh, there were searchlights coming from the CNE area, and uh, as you probably have seen lots of times, and and uh, they were sweeping around the sky. Right and at one point, almost overhead. Whenever the searchlights passed overhead at this one point, you could see this object illuminated in them. What it was, if you hold a a small, uh, let's say a a pea, at arm's length, it it looked like a a ball of dense cloud, about pea size at arm's length, surrounded by uh, a ball of slightly less dense uh, cloud, about the size of a quarter, held at arm's length. Now, uh, because I could see the angle the searchlights were making as they swung around, and I knew the distance down to the CNE grounds where they were from Bloor and Lansdown, I used trigonometry, basic high school math, to calculate the altitude.
2: <laughs> Good for you.
9: <laughs> oh, yeah, it was about 15,000 feet was the answer I got. I, uh, you take something the size of a pea or a quarter held at arm's length, and that makes it like at least the size of a strip mall.
2: There you go. Yep, these floating and, uh, box stores I watched we're hearing
9: about. It for at least an hour, at least an hour. I was looking at other people to see if anyone noticed that no one was looking up. You know, people just running. It was a cold, windy night, and people were going about their business hurriedly. But I stood at least an hour. I changed my location a couple of times and kept looking at it. It did not move. It wasn't blowing around in the wind. The clouds were racing by across the city in this, you know, the, the late November you know, blast we were getting. And it, this thing did not move. It, I, I just wonder... I've heard about things shrouded in cloud, and I was wondering if anyone else had ever seen this or knew what, what it was. This is an atmospheric phenomenon.
2: Give us What's the date it? again, uh, uh, Mark. Give us the date, roughly. Uh, I had
9: it on the report. I'd have to check my files. It's years ago now. It's like 14 years ago, but it was around 2000.
2: Okay. All right. Well, we'll throw that out there, and uh, I'll invite people to uh, maybe send me an email. You can uh, email me through the website, com. Just go to the contact page, and uh, if you saw anything... Um, Roughly fifteen thousand feet, visible uh, certainly around the CNE, caught up in the uh, the, the searchlights, and yeah. CNE of course going on right now, just uh, a stone's throw from here. Oh yeah, so, well,
9: the, I was at, no, I was at Blue and Lansdown.
2: Right, but, right,
9: but, uh, and it was almost overhead from, um, where I was.
2: Okay, so two thousand, what what time? Uh, late August, right?
9: No, late late November. Late November. Middle November. I'm middle sorry, to late November.
2: Middle to late November. I oh, got it. Yeah. Okay. All right, well, let's uh, throw that out there and see what happens. I appreciate your call, Mark.
9: Oh, thank you very much for taking my call, Mr. Sarah. It was a pl- pleasure.
2: Not at all. Uh, and uh, listen, if you, uh, if you ever contact uh, MUFON and you're not getting you know, the response you want, there's always, I know it's an American organization, but Peter Davenport is the, uh, the director at the National UFO Reporting Center. And he may, I don't know for sure, but I- I'm guessing he might take some Canadian uh, calls as well, and that's org. N-U-F-O-R-C, Newfork. Org. All right, that's it for uh, us. Listen next week, Rabbi Jonathan Kahn back on the program. The author of The Harbinger uh, talks about uh, signs of an impending economic crash, which seem to fit in with some sort of biblical cycle. It's called the Shemitah. Rabbi Jonathan Kahn back next week on the program, along with Joshua P. Warren, paranormal investigator. The author of a brand new book. It's a good one. It was a dark and creepy night. Thanks, Tim Spreen. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed. Nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.